friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA Sunny Young in Washington. Welcome to the November 8th edition of the sunny side of sports. It's not just the 32 qualified teams preparing for the upcoming FIFA World Cup football tournament in Qatar. More than 100 referees and match officials are also getting ready for their sports premiere event. And to help their decision-making on the pitch, FIFA is revamping the 2022 World Cup with innovative technology. VOA's Gwen Uten joins us now with more details. Sporty greetings, Gwen. Sporty greetings, Sonny. With just 12 days until this year's FIFA World Cup kicks off in Qatar, 32 teams and over 100 referees and match officials are preparing to put their physical and technical skills to the test on the sport's biggest stage. And in what is being called an extraordinary development in match officials, the upcoming tournament will use semi-automated offside technology that will send an alert to the video assistant referee when a player is offside. FIFA promises the support tool will help officials make more accurate offside decisions. And FIFA Refereeing Committee Chairman Pierluigi Colina says the new technology will reduce the time it takes to review all on-field calls. We are working on a more consistent use of VAR, in particular concerning the line of intervention, as well as we are aware that sometimes the length of checks and reviews is definitely too long, in particular concerning offside. The technology will use nearly a dozen strategically placed cameras to continuously collect up to 29 data points on each individual player and calculate their exact position on the pitch. And a chip at the center of the match ball will track every touch and provide an unprecedented level of ball movement data within seconds. The technology has been given the nickname Robot Line but Pierluigi Colina insists human referees aren't out of a job yet. Uh, I heard and I read about uh, robot referees and uh, similar things. Um, I understand that sometimes uh, uh, this is uh, very good for uh, headlines, but uh, uh, this is not the case. Uh, the match officials are still involved in the decision-making process as uh, the, the semi-automated offside gives an answer only when a player who was in an offside position plays the ball. In other words, the assessment of uh, uh, interfering with an opponent remains a match official's responsibility. 
Over the summer, refs and match officials across the globe gathered for three-day seminars organized by FIFA to ensure smooth and successful competitions. All 129 World Cup officials were put to the test in both theoretical classes and on-field training sessions that simulated live matches. And as Pierluigi Colina explains, despite a more innovative tournament, the seminars helped prepare refs to be less reliant on technology. Our objective is uh, to, uh, to prepare the referee as best as possible uh, to avoid uh, to use uh, the technology. But the technology is there. And FIFA refereeing director Massimo Busaka adds each seminar provided a way for referees and match officials from six confederations to train together, much like a national team. It's like a football team. They have to prepare everything perfectly to arrive also very well prepared in the most important competition we have in sports. So here uh, we analyze situation, we discuss about concept, topics and whatever we need to, to be on the same page. Like a player who wants to win the game, who wants to score a goal, have to understand exactly what, uh, what you have to do. And for us, preparation is crucial. 36 referees, 69 assistant referees, and 24 video match officials have been selected for this year's tournament. And among them, three will make history as the first women to officiate matches at the Men's World Cup tournament. At the start of this year, Rwandan Salima Mukansanga became the first woman to referee a match in the Africa Cup of Nations. And following her appointment, Mukansanga said becoming the first woman to officiate an AFCON match will pave the way for more female referees on the continent. We are here not because we had favor to be here. It's just chance. It's no, because we deserve to be here. We have a background and from that background is passion and from that passion is hard work and from that hard work, this is the fruit. So Back home, we have been working very hard because a lot say women, they can't run at the pace of men's speed and whatever. Yes, uh, we can't be men, but we can do our best to be on the same level. Japan's Yoshimi Yamashita became her country's first woman professional football referee in August. And she believes the time has come to normalize female refs on the pitch. Yamashita says, for us women to participate in the Men's World Cup for the first time is sending a message that there are more possibilities for women in the future. I myself feel it all the time. In 2020, French referee Stephanie Fropar made football history when she became the first woman to officiate at a Men's UEFA Champions League match. This year, she became the first woman to referee a men's French Cup final. And now, ahead of her World Cup debut, Fopar says breaking ground in the sport has prepared all the women to take charge in the upcoming tournament. And we won a lot because uh, every game is uh, it's a training for us. It's also more experience, uh, more management with the players. So every game, every year, we improve a lot. So I think we will be ready for the World Cup. 
The trio will be joined by Brazilian News Up Back, Mexico's Karen Diaz Medina, and American Catherine Nesbitt, three female referees who've been named to assist on the pitch. This year's historic World Cup will be the first to take place in the Middle East and the first to be held in the winter at the end of the calendar year. And we're only 12 days away from the start of the tournament that kicks off with a standalone opening match between Ecuador and host country Qatar on November 20th. And that is all for me, Sonny. Back over to you. Thanks, Gwen. That's my VOA colleague, Gwen Uden. We heard from Salima Mukunsanga in Gwen's report in this encore sunny side of sports presentation. Ejen Uimana in Kigali tells us more about the Rwandan referee. I'm happy with my profession. <laughs> Salima Mukunsanga is putting Rwanda on the map. Sports analyst Athen Tashobia says having uh, Salima Mukansanga as the, the first ever female uh, referee to officiate at the finals of Africa Cup of Nations is such a huge milestone. Not only for Rwanda, uh, but uh, I mean for the African uh, women uh, sportsmen and referees. Uh, I think she's opening up for. Uh, future milestones. In 1988, in Western Rwanda, a girl who would make history was born in the Rusiz district, near the border of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Salima Mukansanga is a nurse by education. She has a bachelor's degree in nursing, which she received from the University of Utrecht. I had the chance to talk with Salima a few days before she flew to France to officiate matches at the 2019 Women's World Cup. She said her father was a big influence in her becoming a football referee. I believe I got this talent from my dad. He was a sportsman. He was not a referee like me, but he played football a long time ago. And when he was old, he used to sponsor football clubs. Salima says when she started as a ref in 2008, she was harshly criticized by football fans who said being an official on the pitch is a man's job. I reached the point where I was about to quit. You see, I do a lot of physical exercises and I get paid per match. So that time matches were not many, which means there was no money. It was difficult for me, but because I knew what I wanted and it is my passion, I had to be resilient. Salima says her big dream is to officiate matches at Senior Men's World Cup. However, football is not her favorite sport. When she was in the secondary school, she loved to play basketball, but due to a lack of female teams, she couldn't continue. Her vision changed, and now she says she exercises six days a week to stay fit and achieve her dream. Salima says one setback to her development has been the lack of female football competitions in Rwanda. In our country, female competitions are not many, and to get access to international ones is not easy. It's a problem because the more you get men matches, the better you become. In becoming an international football referee, Salima Mkansanga has empowered many Rwandan girls. So says a sports commentator at Grande Broadcasting Agency, Rigoga Ruth. When girls hear the story of Salima, they understand that it is possible. It motivates them to keep believing in sports and consider it as a career, a profession 
that you can make a living with. She's a Rwandan treasure. Rwanda has been recognized globally for its efforts to promote women in politics and other fields. Ethan Tashobja says Salima is a visible product of these initiatives. I think uh, the international community, especially Africa, is recognizing the effort that the, uh, the effort that the Rwandan government is putting into uh, to support uh, women, to empower women in all sectors. And uh, when Salima Mukansanga was given an opportunity to officiate, uh, they just concluded the Olympic Games. Uh, I think the calf was awake. Uh, they were watching and they were like, hmm, this lady is from, Af- from Rwanda, she's from Africa, uh, from a country that has been at the top of women empowerment in, in all sectors, politics. Um, uh, and then here we have uh, a sports personality in her own category. I think it's sort of attached to the entire effort that the country, the government of Rwanda is putting in to empower women. For the sunny side of sports, I'm Ejen Wiman, reporting from Chigali, Rwanda. Thanks, Ejen. Hi, this is Larry London, the host of VOA's Border Crossings, where we feature music and interviews along with your favorite artists from around the world. and interact live with us here in Washington, D.C. Hello, Shirin. Hello, Larry. How are you? Good. How are you tonight? Border Crossings comes to you Monday through Friday at 1500 UTC GMT. Thanks, Larry. That's Larry London, a man who's always ready to cross musical borders. I encourage our sunny side of sports listeners to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. My Facebook address is facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. Once again, that address, facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. And my Twitter handle is at VOA Sunny Sports. Once again, my Twitter handle, at VOA Sunny Sports. The draws were held Monday for the round of 16 in the UEFA Champions League and the UEFA Europa League, Europe's top two club football tournaments. For analysis, Iron Mike Mbonye spoke with the chief football writer at ACLSports.com, Fisayo Dairo. The round of 16 draws for the UEFA Champions League and Europa League really served the fans with some tasty fixtures to look forward to. I'm sure everyone will agree that one of the biggest matchups is a repeat of last year's final between Liverpool of England and Real Madrid. These are two teams that have won the UEFA Champions League countless times. Real Madrid are the most successful team in the competition, while Liverpool are one of the most successful in England, if not the most successful. So having the presence of African superstar Mohamed Salah that definitely will be a fixture to look out for. And then the other African big gun in Europe, Sadio Mane, will be involved in the second mighty fixture, which will be between Paris Saint-Germain and Bayern Munich. No one can ask any better than these kind of fixtures. 
PSG have been in a very rich vein of form under the new head coach Christophe Gatlier this season. And for Bayern Munich, they can do no harm under Julian Nagelsmann. So with Sadio Mane once again in the picture, he'll be coming toe-to-toe against the biggest stars in, in what football, Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe and Neymar. So definitely, these are some of the big fixtures to look forward to. And also in the Europa League, Manchester United and Barcelona contested the UEFA Champions League final a couple of times around the 2011-2013 period. But guess what? They are playing in the Europa League round of 16. So that is undoubtedly the biggest fixture in that particular competition. So no disrespect to any team. All the fixtures are tasty, but these three ones I've highlighted are the tastier of the pack. The UEFA organized leagues will soon enter the round of 16 stage. How many clubs with African players made it to this stage? Like I have always emphasized here on the sunny side of sport, the importance of African players to the big European clubs cannot be underestimated. That's why out of the 16 teams in the round of 16 in the Champions League, at least 12 of them will be banking on great performances from their African exports. In the first fixture, RB Leipzig will be taking on Manchester City, who have Algerian superstar Riyad Mahrez in action and scored their last goal in the group stage last week. Club Brugge of Belgium have two African stars that have contributed immensely to the team this season. Nigerian midfielder Rafael Onyedika Nwadike and Ghanaian striker Kamal Sowa have been imperious for the team and they come up against Benfica. Liverpool, we cannot say more about Mohamed Salah. He is who he is, the top scoring African right there in England and he will be open alongside Nabi Keita of Guinea to be in action against Real Madrid. AC Milan have another Algerian star, Ishmael Benassa and he'll be coming up toe-to-toe against Malian midfielder Juves Bissouma for Tottenham when both teams meet. Sporty Grissom, this is Victor Simeon, Super Eagles of Nigeria and Napoli FC forward. You're listening to the sunny side of thoughts on the voice of America. Nigerian striker Victor Simeon is expected to lead line for Napoli when they face Antifort of Germany, while for Chelsea, they still have Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang of Gabon and Hakim Ziyech of Morocco still in their fold. And the game between Inter Milan and FC Porto will see Cameroonian goalkeeper Andre Onana lining out for Inter against Porto who have Nigerian left-back Zaidu Sanusi. And the big one between PSG and Bayern Munich will have Hakimi Atraf of Morocco at right-back for PSG and he'll be coming straight head-to-head against Bayern Munich superstar Sadio Mane of Senegal as well as Cameroonian attacker Eric Maxim Chupomoting. Kesayo, the UEFA organized leagues are expected to go on break because of the World Cup. What's your take on the impact of African players in the matches played so far? I must admit that it has been a very rigorous football season in Europe somewhat unprecedented because plenty of these domestic leagues have ensured that games come in thick and fast trying to catch up to ensure that this unprecedented World Cup break coming in November will leave them with sufficient time to complete the season when the World Cup ends. But very good for Africa. Our exports from this continent have always given themselves a good name for themselves. They've always hit the headlines for the right reasons. From the domestic scene every weekend to the continental scene on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, 
name them from the UEFA Champions League to the Europa League and the Conference League. Top stars from Africa have portrayed themselves in the very best of light. A lot of attackers from England. We have Mohamed Salah scoring the goals for Liverpool in Germany. Bayern Munich, Sadio Mane remain at the peak of his powers. In Italy, Nigeria's Victor Rusimen is the league's leading scorer. So these are some of the African stars that have not stopped to entertain and to also deliver good value for the money being paid to them. The whole continent is so delighted to have these guys representing us very well. And for those that will be going to the World Cup, I mean, players from Senegal, Cameroon, Ghana, Morocco, Tunisia, they'll be hoping to continue in a rich vein of form, or those that are not in good form, they'll be hoping that they eat good form for their respective countries. While for those that will not be in Qatar, like some of the superstars are already mentioned, the Salahs, the Siemens of this world, the Obama Young, they hope to rest and refire for the conclusion of the season starting from the ending of December. That's Fisayo Dairo, the chief football writer at ACLSports.com. And Fisayo spoke with Iron Mike Mbonye on the telephone from Port Harcourt, Nigeria. Sporty greetings. This is Fisayo Dairo. Chief Football Writer at ACLSports.com and you are listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. The sunny side of sports remembers former world heavyweight boxing champion Smokin' Joe Frazier. Smokin' Joe died on November 7th, 2011 at the age of 67. I have to say, meeting Smokin' Joe, one of the big sporting highlights of my life. Smokin' Joe was one of my boyhood heroes. He was born in Beaufort, South Carolina, and yours truly just down the road from Beaufort in Charleston, South Carolina. Smokin' Joe visited our Voice of America headquarters, and that was a thrill to meet him. And then shortly thereafter, Smokin' Joe invited me up to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he owned a boxing gym. And I was able to spend the day with Smokin' Joe. Rest in power, Smokin' Joe Frazier. One of Smokin' Joe's achievements was a gold medal at the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. Some more Olympic news. An indigenous-led bid to host the 2030 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games in Vancouver, Canada, has hit a major roadblock. The British Columbia government has declined to support the bid and in doing so has angered the First Nations by not meeting with them to discuss the project. Craig McCulloch reports from Vancouver. The bid for the Vancouver area to once again host the Winter Games is being led by what is called the four host First Nations. The Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Lowat have traditionally lived in the area, now known as Vancouver and the ski resort of Whistler. 
The area hosted the 2010 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games, and as part of that event, hundreds of First Nation youths from across Canada came together for what was known as The Gathering. Since then, awareness of the rights of Indigenous peoples has increased, and hosting the Games has been promoted as a way to highlight Indigenous culture. It is also seen as an act of reconciliation in light of historic human rights abuses against First Nations. Lisa Bear, the British Columbia Tourism and Sport Minister, declined to speak directly with VOA. In a written release, she said the provincial government will not support the proposal because of potential direct costs and more financial risk in indemnifying any 2030 Games. She has estimated the Games would cost just under $900 million U.S. million, with the province exposed to a further $730 million in risk. This is with most of the venues from the 2010 Games being reused. Other factors in the decision not to financially back the bid include Vancouver being a host city for the 2026 Men's World Cup of Soccer and the 2025 Invictus Games. Chief Jen Thomas of the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation says the decision marks 10 steps back for the process of reconciliation. She says the organizers of the bid could live with the answer being no, but are upset the provincial government did not make an effort to discuss the proposal with the First Nations or the Canadian Paralympic and Olympic Committees. We did invite the province to come to our table to talk about this. We were asked by the province to share why we want the Olympics, why it's so important to us, and we didn't even get get that opportunity to share that with them. Wilson Williams of the Squamish First Nation says despite the provincial government's claims of reconciliation and working with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the British Columbia provincial government is not truly ready. I know they're, they're working with colonial system that uh, keeps pushing Indigenous peoples away. But at the same time, like I said, we're not going away. We will stand strong in order to have our voice heard. Along with other First Nations and the Canadian Paralympic and Olympic Committees, Wilson says his people are still open to discussions with the provincial government on the project. Wilson noted that the First Nations are not involved in Vancouver being a host city for the 2026 World Cup or the Invictus Games. In a written statement to VOA, a spokesperson for Lisa Baird, the tourism minister, said she has offered to meet with the First Nations and is willing to do so. However, after evaluating the proposal for over a year... The government had made a decision and felt it was important to relay that decision to the nations as soon as possible. Bear and the provincial government initially rejected hosting the World Cup, only to later reverse course. Montreal-based lawyer Richard Pound is the longest-serving active member of the International Olympic Committee and says there's still a chance for the bid to be successful. This could turn out to be just a hiccup uh, that could be solved by sitting down and saying, you know, what, what, what are the plans? Uh, and, and, you know, can they be uh, altered in, in, in any respect to, to sort of address some of the concerns that the government uh, has expressed? Pound says it is a shame the announcement was made without any meaningful dialogue, and it is a slap in the face to a unique and original initiative. He says the bid has a real chance of succeeding for a variety of reasons. This includes several recent games being held in Asia, and any competing bid from Salt Lake City coming too soon after the Los Angeles 2028 Summer Games. Craig McCulloch for VOA News, Vancouver. Thanks, Craig. It's Election Day here in the United States. The National Basketball Association has cleared its calendar. There are no games. The NBA wants players and fans to get out and vote. However, Monday night was a busy night in the NBA. 
All 30 teams were in action. The AP's Chuck Freeman reports. There are no unbeatens in the NBA. After nine straight wins to open up the season, Milwaukee fell in Atlanta 117-98. Philadelphia down Phoenix 100-88. Joel Embiid had 33. Jason Tatum had 39. Boston wins in Memphis 109-106. Portland 110. Miami 107. Chicago 111. Toronto 97. New York wins in Minnesota 120-107. Dallas a win at Brooklyn 90. 96-94. Luka Doncic had 36. Denver over San Antonio, 115-109. The LA Lakers played without LeBron James. They fell to 2-8. Utah beat the Lakers, 139-116. Houston, 134-127 over Orlando. Golden State rallied in the fourth quarter to snap a five-game skid. Warriors, 116. Sacramento, 113. Detroit, 112. Oklahoma City, 103. Washington, 108. Charlotte, 100. And Indiana beat New Orleans, 129-122. No upsets in college basketball the opening night defending NCAA champ at sixth ranked Kansas took down Omaha 89-64 and number one North Carolina who went to the final four last year opened up its season with a 13 point win over NC Wilmington Chuck Freeman thanks Chuck finally a crowd estimated at more than 1 million fans celebrated the Houston Astros winning their second World Series baseball title in six seasons with a downtown parade. The parade on Monday started at noon local time in Houston, Texas, and lasted for a couple of hours. Fans packed sidewalks as Astros players riding floats and buses waved at the cheering fans. Over the weekend, the Astros beat the Philadelphia Phillies to win the World Series four games to two. And that wraps up the November 8th edition of the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. And that's the sunny side of sports.